breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This. It is always a pleasure to be with all of you. Thank you for taking your time, whether it's your weekend, your time in the gym, time on the bike, walking, driving, whatever it might be. Thanks for letting me be a part of your day. Here's where we talk about the front lines of the battle between the Islamist ideas and the West, modernity, freedom, liberty. And every week I find those areas that are at the top of the news that few will drill down on the way you'll hear them here on this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for joining me. And thanks to uh, blaze.com backslash podcasts with all the great podcasts they have. And also you can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. This week is no different. It will not disappoint. We will be talking about, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving. The offense that keeps on offending Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And it's worth talking about again because it's been the top of the media. And also I think the responses, her lack of responses, her drilling down, her allies uh, uh, and other responses, I think show exactly why the prime timing of Islamists is important to pay attention to. We'll also talk briefly about the IRGC, the the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, and they've been made a terrorist organization. We'll talk about the leading imam of the Muslim World League from Saudi Arabia that put a message at foxnews.com that was actually quite interesting that you might find that I agree with, and yet I'm still scratching my head, ladies and gentlemen. We'll talk about that. And last, let me start with this. This week... We saw the funeral nationally publicized, nationally televised, many of it uh, with some of the sermons for Nipsey Hussle. Now, as a rapper, I'm admittedly ignorant of uh, much of their music, much of his music and the genre. But I will tell you that uh, he had a reputation that preceded him. He was working on cleaning up the neighborhood that he came from, the Crenshaw neighborhood, and uh, had a lot of good work for his community that he had done. And, uh, you know, congrats to uh, President Barack Obama, who left a letter for him with the family that acknowledged that uh, uh, the changes, the work he had done with the gangs, the bullets, the despair, as President Obama said. Nipsey saw potential, he saw hope, he saw a community that even through its flaws taught him to always keep going. So why am I talking about Nipsey? Well... As I'm watching this funeral, here's a sermon being given by Louis Farrakhan. So, listen. You know, the left, the Democrats have a problem. Hollywood has a problem. The mainstreaming of bigots, whether it's for a funeral, whether it's for whatever the occasion might be. I'm not going to get into the details of how his family and friends decided to invite the bigoted racist minister who never found a dictator, be it Qaddafi or the king of Saudi Arabia, he wouldn't cozy up to. But this guy continues even up until a few weeks ago spewing just vile anti-Semitism, vile anti-Americanism. And what upset me was not that he was invited again. I don't know the 
the family or their connections. But that television showing his funeral continued to air Farrakhan on every station. On Twitter feeds, Facebook feeds of ABC News, CBS News, CNN, and on. Why wasn't that cut off? It doesn't take rocket science to say, hey, when a racist bigot like Louis Farrakhan comes on the screen who three weeks ago was calling Jews termites, he said he's not an anti-Semite, he's an anti-termite. You do the math about what that means. It's not complex about the fascistic nature of that kind of hate speech. And yet... Bill Clinton sat next to him in another funeral last year. Hillary Clinton sat next to him. The photos were tried to be removed from the internet when the backlash happened. And he continues to be mainstream. So, you know, as my good friend uh, Seth Leibson here said, uh, asked the question, is the radical Islamist, is the radical left, the radical socialist going to be the demise or the future? of the Democratic Party and what they do with it. Conservatives are asking that. My response was, I don't know. The question is what they will do with it. Will they come back to the center? And in the process of shedding their radicalism, become more normal? Or will they continue to become more extreme and thus become identified by these collectivists, by these radicals? So, this week... Congresswoman Omar stepped in it again. And stepped in it again because we talked before, she gave a speech a few weeks ago to the Council on American-Islamic Relations fundraiser. Fundraiser that was protested in L.A. And the video gets out and starts being reported on in the past week and a half. And a clip is shown... A clip is shown in which she said that her rise to prominence, her understanding of what happened to the Muslim community, that she gave a little narrative, a little history lesson. Remember, she was speaking to the Islamist supporters of the Council on American-Islamic Relations in L.A. So she said, 9-11 happens, some people did something, and then that became a license To have your, talking to Muslims in the audience, the Islamists, political, that's a political movement, that took your civil rights away from you, chip by chip, she said. Some people did something. So, reporting was made, videos were put out, and all of a sudden, she was complaining about being taken out of context. Dan Crenshaw... Congressman Dan Crenshaw from Texas highlighted her tweet, her video rather, in which she said some people did something. And she went on to justify the establishment of CARE. CARE, which she noted in the video that she claimed was founded after 9 11, when in fact, it was founded long before, in 94, as the Islamic Association of Palestine and then renamed itself as these fronts for Hamas that they are, as the FBI reported it in the Holy Land Foundation trial of 2007 through 9. 
It then became the Council on American Islamic Relations in 1996. Crenshaw then says in a tweet this week, first member of Congress, Ilhan Omar, to ever describe terrorists who killed thousands of Americans on 9-11 as some people who did something. Unbelievable. Her response to that was, that was hate speech, that that was going to get her killed. She says, this is dangerous incitement given the death threats that I face. I hope leaders of both parties will join me in condemning it. My love and commitment to our country. Are you kidding me? Now, criticism of her speech is equivalent to racism and, and, and incitement. It sounds actually, ladies and gentlemen, like when we talk about Islamism, right? I'm always talking to you about trying to educate you about the, the parameters and the outlines of what is theopolitical Islamism, theocracy. Well, a theocrat, as in Ilhan Omar, sees the world through a different lens, sees the Muslim community as a collective, as a race, and thus an attack on one, especially the political leaders, is an attack on all. And a criticism of one, especially questioning leadership, is improper, that's blasphemy. So she's invoked the blasphemy laws that exist in Saudi Arabia, where, or Egypt, or, or, or Pakistan, Sharia, supremacism, that if you criticize certain things in government, then that is equivalent to criticizing Islam, and that is blasphemy. Dan Crenshaw has committed blasphemy, and she will put him in his place by saying that that effectively is a death warrant. And Dan responded that he didn't really need to, but he did. I never called you un-American. He said, I did not incite any violence against you. You described an act of terrorism on American soil. They killed thousands of innocent lives as some people did something. It's still unbelievable, as is your response here. As they said in Australia, good on you, Dan. Good on you. And then the New York Post went one step further. Said Representative Ilhan Omar at the top front page of their newspaper. 9-11 was some people did something. And then picture of the Twin Towers. Here's your something. 2,977 people dead by terrorism. Nothing about Islam. Nothing about Muslims. Just making a point. Why would she say that? The response then from her friend, Rashida Tlaib, the other Islamist in Congress, elected this past cycle. Tlaib then says, that her sister is speaking the truth. Her sister is being targeted because of racism and hate. Seriously, now, any criticism of just wacky radical statements, statements that are part and parcel of the core radicalization of American Muslims, the core radicalization of our community, is the philosophy that we are the targets, that we are the victims, that we are constantly in grievance mode, that we can't be what we want to be because we're suffocated by a country that hates Muslims. Seriously, so suffocated that they're being elected to Congress repeatedly. So suffocated that the standards of her ideas can't even be held to the same as anyone else because she's a young junior freshman congressman who's a refugee and we got to give her some slack even though she might be horrifically anti-Semitic. It's not the same as the Jewish community that can take a lot more. 
Seriously, that's called bigotry of low expectations. Good on the New York Post for having the courage to call a spade a spade. Chris Hayes at MSNBC then tweeted out, she's one of the bravest, most courageous, leading voices on human rights in the Middle East and across the world. He's talking about Ilhan Omar, ladies and gentlemen, who so far has cozied up to Venezuelan dictators, visited Eritrea without voicing significant criticism for the dictatorship there, has been critical of Saudi Arabia, but I'll remind you, only since 2017, when the Saudis decided to take on the Muslim Brotherhood globally. We'll talk about a little bit about, more about that later. So, looking at this hullabaloo about Congresswoman Omar, are we giving her too much attention? Should we ignore her little speeches at CARE? I have to tell you, as the president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, as an American Muslim dedicated to this issue, I am elated that there's somebody in prime time that you are all seeing and hearing that I had to hear every day lead our communities. And it wasn't Ilhan Omar. She's barely, what, 30 years old? I don't know how old she is. But the imams at the mosques, the heads of Islamist groups like the Muslim Public Affairs Council, the Muslim Advocates, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Muslim Student Association, the Islamic Society of North America, the Muslim American Society, the Islamic Circle of North America. All of these organizations are hatched from the Muslim Brotherhood ideology of the 60s and 70s that the Saudis funded, that others Petro-Islamists funded. They've been leading our community into a separatism, into a ideology that tells us that the Western system is hedonistic, is anti-Islam, and they have pushed the narrative of colonialism, of, of the fact that the West was trying to destroy Islam. They divided the world into the land of Islam and the land of war. So, the radicalization, when you hear Ilhan Omar say some people did something, She's speaking to an Islamist group in which she's refusing to even acknowledge that it was actual Muslims that did it or even name Al-Qaeda. There's actually a video of her from four or five years ago laughing with another Somali interviewer, chuckling about, do you ever notice when they, when they say Al-Qaeda, they lift up Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda. Like she, she's laughing that when... Americans say Al-Qaeda, they say it as a scary thing. But yet when they say America, they don't say it as scary. So she's morally equivalent, making a moral equivalency between America and Al-Qaeda. So the denial, is this trutherism? I mean, <laughs> it might be. She's dabbling in 9-11 trutherism. She's dabbling in conspiracy theories. But at the minimum, she does... She's demagoguing her constituency there in L.A. that 
we recognize that those aren't even Muslims. Like the Saudis, they say ISIS aren't Muslims. Al-Qaeda is not. These are not Muslims. These are just rabid animals. We don't know where their ideas came from. Hello, what do you mean? Your Wahhabist Salafi jihadi ideology has nothing to do with their ideas? I Yeah, it does. So you're all, ladies and gentlemen, getting some clarity of what exactly is being said in most of the mosques across the country, what exactly is being said in many communities as their videos release, then you say, they say, oh, this is out of context. What is the context? Watch the whole video of her speaking to care. There's no explanation. She says some people did something as if they're trying to minimize it. Her speech was about civil rights. It wasn't about 9-11, so she didn't focus on it. She just ignored it as just one act. Dan Crenshaw, who criticized her on Twitter, lost his eye in war in, in Afghanistan serving this country. And he heard an immigrant who was saved from a culture, from a society, from a government that was destroying her freedoms. And he went to fight to protect them. And she is saying that just some people did something and doesn't seem to have the courage to fight it. And her response to his comments is that it's going to reap her death threats. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you follow me and you followed any of us, first of all, many prominent people get death threats all the time. And by the way, the group she's listening and speaking to has an Islamophobia.org website that has a hit list on it of Muslims, they of, of individuals, Americans. That includes myself and includes our Muslim reform movement as organizations that are anti-Islam. Why is it anti-Islam? No, no ideas are refuted. No, it's simply because they say so. Because we're a threat to their power structure, to their network of Islamist establishment. And that gets us death threats all the time. I've had my name, my Wikipedia information, and others posted in Arabic on Al-Qaeda websites in Syria, which have been seen. Had to up my security for a while when that happened five, six years ago. Same thing on ISIS pages. And the information they're using is coming from the CARE Islamophobia website. So, listen, you're going to be in public space, get your big, big person pants on, and you're going to get some death threats. You have to get security. And that's not why this stuff is intended to put out. It's debate. It's free, free speech. People who relish and complain and whine that certain speech becomes... Incitement is when you actually call for violence against somebody. That's not what Crenshaw did. That's what none of us are doing. We are simply saying... That her speech of minimizing what happened, not as an act of war, but as somebody, somebody that did something, not as an act by Al-Qaeda, but somebody that did something, not as, a, not as an act by Muslims, but somebody that did something, shows that she rejects any acceptance of the fact that there was a strain of ideology that trafficked in the radicalization that attacked our country. She wrote, she wrote herself, by the way. Ilhan Omar wrote in Time magazine. First of all, I'm going to tell you the offensive thing she wrote. Talking about unity will take generations. 
She said, and this is in the wake of Charlottesville, we need to recognize that racism has never been subtle, though it has gone underreported. This is the same fight as the civil rights movement, the civil war we are fighting over human rights. So the solution is not compromise. Okay, that's good. I agree. The solution is to educate. I agree. Now comes her real point. It is imperative. She wrote this just two years ago, by the way. It is imperative we collectively overcome and make amends with history. We must confront that our nation was founded by the genocide of indigenous people and on the backs of slaves, that we maintain global power with the tenor of neocolonialism. Neocolonialism. That America, she's saying, in 2017 is still a colonial power. If that's not from fascists in the Middle East, I don't know what is. Our failure to reconcile these facts and our failure to take over action, overt action to correct mistakes further deepens the divide. Our national avoidance tactic has been to shift the focus to potential international terrorism. Avoidance tactic. Shifting it to international. If that's somebody who takes terrorism seriously, I don't know what is. With constant misinformation and fear-mongering, it's easy to exacerbate external threats while avoiding our internal weaknesses. And because we have perpetually avoided the truth, Omar said, pretending that everything has been okay, we have not focused on laws to protect us from domestic terrorism. She said, to bridge the divide, to bridge the divide, if we are not actively fighting against regressive ideologies, we are contributing to their growth. We must be courageous. We must spread a radical vision of love and unity. So here's somebody who was lecturing Americans about being courageous in 2017, and she herself can't speak to her own community and recognize that it was radical Muslims due to radical ideologies political, theopolitical ideologies that caused 9-11 and an act of war against this country. She wouldn't even name bin Laden. And yet she's lecturing about the root cause of ideologies that caused this country that she says she loves, and yet when she gets down into the weeds of ideas, she spews victimization, grievances, and America being the center of the problem. This is an Islamist worldview, no different than if you're a free market thinker and you're offended by a socialist worldview for economics. I, as a Muslim, as a liberal Muslim thinker, believer in liberty, am offended by this worldview. And I would like to ask her, by the way, why hasn't a reporter just asked Ilhan Omar? Congresswoman, let's set the record, let's set the record straight. Tell us. Can you tell us what happened on 9-11 and who did it? If it takes her longer than 20 seconds to say, on 9-11, a concerted act by evil, led by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, declared war on us and attacked us in an act of war on our soil, downing the Twin Towers, 
hitting the Pentagon and landing in Pennsylvania. Driven by a global ideology of radical Islamism, of Wahhabism, of Salafi Jihadism. If she could not say that, then there's something deeper down. Some animus, some conspiracy theories, some lens through which she sees this country which is pathological. Rashida Tlaib said it was about context. It's racism to question what she said. I've listened, watched her speech a few times. I can't find any context that explains that nonsense. Neither can most honest Americans. We're getting clarity, ladies and gentlemen, and you're getting clarity about what the Islamist agenda is and how they see the world every day. And I'm going to continue, continue to cover it here because it allows you to hear the voice inside my head, the voice that I wish I could speak out, but I have to keep inside my head because the mosques don't give us a podium, because the Islamic organizations dominate who we are because they're funded by Qatar and other petro-Islamic organizations. While as we seek to be normalized, the Muslim Reform Movement, our American Islamic Forum for Democracy, we get 10-foot pole marks from especially liberal media, but also from government and other strategic thinkers. And it's getting tougher. It's getting tougher. This week, we saw a piece at foxnews.com written by written by the good Muhammad El-Isa. El-Isa is a head, one of the leading imams of the Muslim World League. What's the Muslim World League? I'll get to that in a second. Actually, I'm going to tell you what he said first, and then we can talk about what it is, because... The Muslim World League's history, is it's going to make your head spin. But bottom line is, is he wrote a piece called My Advice to Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. And highlighted is a quote. He said, I tell Muslims everywhere I travel to embrace the nations they live in and to positively integrate. The process must start early. It makes no sense to separate Muslim children and youth from the rest of society or to cloister them away in Islamic private schools. What? Yeah, that's what he said. Don't cloister them away in Islamic private schools. We can teach our children religion without isolating them from the communities or erecting psychological walls between them and the majority. This is written at foxnews.com by Muhammad Elisa, one of the leaders of the Muslim World League. What is the Muslim World League? It's a quote-unquote international non-governmental Islamic organization based in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. Its goal is to clarify the true message of Islam. It, for decades, was one of the central organizing institutions of Muslim youth globally of the Muslim Brotherhood. It was not technically Muslim Brotherhood since it's based out of Saudi Arabia, but its ideological concepts about jihad, about Salafism, the role of women, the role of free speech or lack of free speech, was all about 
the Saudi interpretation, the predominant interpretation of clerics in Saudi Arabia. They've got their obvious Western face. But now we see there's been a switch, and I've talked to you about that switch before, a switch in the Saudi approach, which is to completely not only separate itself from the Brotherhood, but they've declared war on the Brotherhood. And the teaching moment, ladies and gentlemen, is when you see the Saudis begin to articulate the ideas that we have been articulating as reformists in the West, you know that they realize, they realize that this is the most effective weapon against the Muslim Brotherhood. Do I actually believe the Muslim World League believes what they wrote here? I don't think so. I'm sorry, I'm not sold on this. They don't want their kids going to Islamic schools. They want them integrating. Are you kidding me? If that's true, then the Salafi doctrine would have abandoned the concept of dividing the world into Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb. It did not do that. They still look at places not ruled by Muslims as a land of war. Or if they haven't, this guy, obviously, this piece says the exact opposite. It says, become loyal citizens, believe in your constitution, Elisa said. I want to take him at his word. But the Muslim world league helped craft some of the Western Muslim Brotherhood ideas, which is jihad is our way and dying by the way of Allah is our goal. Now, in order for them to abandon all that, it was easy to adopt some of those very militant ideas because it was natural out of their interpretations of Sirah, the stories of the Prophet, the Sharia, the interpretation of the kingdom school of thought, which is Maliki, but there's also Shafi, which became much of the predominant school of thought of the reliance of the traveler Sharia text. But all of these texts... If you look at Ibn Taymiyyah's interpretations that were pushed, were very jihadist, beyond intolerant, expansionist, if you will, colonialists, interpretations of the spread of Islam. Now he's saying in here it is a challenging question. He said, as the Secretary General of the Muslim World League, it is not my place to counsel lawmakers, Muslim or not. Oh, look at the humility. That's great. My refrain is often along the lines of they should faithfully advocate for their constituents and faithfully serve as custodians of their constitution. That sounds like the mission statement of our American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He said, respecting the law is a two-way street. When I sat down with French politician Marine Le Pen, people questioned what I was trying to do. I hope I showed them otherwise when we found some common ground. Particularly concerning integration, we agreed that the nation must guarantee full rights and freedom to all people. I hate to digress for a second, but I'll remind you, the Saudis a few weeks ago met with the Chinese and congratulated them for what they're doing against terrorism as they try to deprogram, reprogram Muslims away from Islam against fasting, forcing them to eat pork and having them in concentration camps as slave labor.
Yes, the Saudis have declared war on the Muslim Brotherhood. What's going on here, ladies and gentlemen? Well, Islamism, Sharia supremacism, the Islamic State identity, has many different forms. The instrument is Sharia. Who invokes that if it's a corporate board of directors, autocracy, theocracy from a royal family or from a government as it's imposed? Then that's the Saudi version, the Egyptian version, the Qatari version. Now, Qatar also believes in the viral version. There's a viral populist Islamism that believes that the people are an entity, that the people are not at the simply slaved and, and at the behest of the ulama, the scholars, but they have a vote, they have a movement. It's still a majoritocracy, it's still a theocracy, but the theocracy has an organism which is the people, a populist theocracy versus a top-down movement from the scholars and a more orderly, corporate, almost militaristic approach to society, which is the royal families. Now, for decades, the last 50 years, the Middle East has said, the, the royal families, the petro-Islamic governments have all said, well, you know what, in the West where they'd have no sharia in their governments and there's the secular atheism or secular humanism, whatever it might be, we are going to expose them to Islam and why not use viral populists of Islamists all over the, from Sweden to Belgium to the United States and Canada to spread these ideas. Then comes the Arab Awakening in 2011. The Islamists win elections in Tunisia. They win elections in Egypt. Bring out a huge threat to Assad. And all of a sudden they started to knock on the door of the royal family in Saudi Arabia. And you saw Qatar dig its heels deeper in with the Islamists to begin to start to threaten the rule of the Saudis in their own country. And as they were closer with the Khomeinists and their viral populism where it has merged since 79 and you have the Islamic revolution continuing to rule from a top-down and bottom-up convergence of a theocratic revolution. So now you have the battle in the Middle East, not only anymore between secular fascists of Baathism and Arabism versus the Islamists, but now you have a new front between the corporate Islamists, autocratic Islamists versus the populist Islamists. As an American who believes in liberal separation of mosque and state and liberty, I find them both equally problematic. Yes, the autocratic Islamists are far less threatening. They don't have global hegemonic desires, at least for now, it seems. Because I say for now, because if you don't reform the concept of caliphate, you're still a eventually going to try for global hegemony. If you don't reform the concept of the Islamic State, you're still going to eventually want global hegemony. If you don't reform the concept of the world divided into Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harb, the land of Islam and the land of war, you're not going to get moderation. Reform. Modernity. So, listen, this piece in Fox News, I think, says a lot of things that I've been saying for decades, over a decade, almost 15 years in our existence at AIFD. 
And it has a lot of good messages for Muslims. Now, you have to always take something with the source it comes from. Our organization has never taken foreign funding. Our organization has always been based in an American idea of immigration, of, of unity and freedom and liberty for every individual, and a need to bring up the ideas of our Declaration of the Muslim Reform Movement, which talks about these things. This Muhammad al-Isa, as great as this one little column is, I don't see any backup of Islamic reform bolstering the end of Dar al-Harb, the land of war, bolstering the end of laws against blasphemy in Saudi Arabia is allowing freedom of thought and questioning the leaders, free speech, and true reforms. I don't see any of that talking about a goal for his country, but rather telling Muslims how to live in ours. So basically, it's an endorsement against anarchy. It's an endorsement for following the rule of law. And it's an endorsement against the Islamic movements of the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamists, which is great but again, there's some self-interest involved there. So we have to understand what this is all about. And put it in context. Context is always important, isn't it? Last, I'm going to leave you with some thoughts. The Trump administration called the Iranian Republican Guard Corps this week a terror organization. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think it's about time they do that. This organization, yes, what has been so important about this designation is the first time that a arm, a significant military arm of a, of a state has been declared a terror group. Now, some have felt that that basically the response from the Khomeinis has been what many were concerned about is that they now said CENTCOM in the United States is a terror organization. The U.S. Navy is a terror organization. That's what they're saying. Now, let's first talk about the IRGC. The IRGC has been funding and fueling and empowering and, and, and giving personnel to Hezbollah for decades. The genocidal war crimes committed in Syria were committed by tens of thousands of the IRGC shipped in from Iran through Iraq into Syria. Yemen and Yemen's Houthis and their acts of terror that they committed are fueled by the IRGC. Shia gangs in Iraq fueled by the IRGC. It is a terror organization, ladies and gentlemen. Now, as the Trump administration said, IRGC is, and Iran is a, is a peculiar, separate situation. And it's an it's Islamic movement that runs a government. An Islamic movement that calls for the death to America, death to Israel at every opportunity it has. That is the definition of terrorism. And then you can say, well, that's state-sponsored terrorism, but we don't call them FTOs, foreign terrorist organizations. Well, we're putting maximum pressure on Iran. The people in Iran, I think the key is that they would tell you that the IRGC is a terror organization by the way it treats its own citizens. Now, they say it's a non-state actor, so it doesn't fit the FTO requirement. And I would tell you, okay, look at Hamas. Hamas 
now understandably was first an FTO. It doesn't run a state, but it's certainly not occupied. It's running its own Palestinian area. And it's still a foreign terrorist organization. So it can happen. Obviously, they're not a state. Does this set a precedent? I don't think so. I think we'll use it very limited, very judiciously. But it does send a message for constant maximum pressure and set some clarity on what the IRGC is. And by the way, the way the Treasury Department dealt with them was basically the way they dealt with terror organizations. Anyway, all this does was expand the State Department's interactions and limit any immigration from folks that had anything to do with the IRGC, which I think, again, is a good thing. So maybe that designation should be expanded a bit anyway. Why should we be accepting anybody that had anything to do with the Syrian government's military? Those are all terrorists. Every one of them that's been involved in military operations by the Syrian government is a terrorist. I would support that. Well, lots to discuss as always, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of my podcast. Please share this. Go to theblaze.com backslash podcast and find my podcast and share it. Go to SoundCloud, find Reform This or go to iTunes. Find me on Twitter at Reform This Radio. Reform This Radio or find my personal Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser. D-R-Z-U-H-G-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. This is yours truly, Zudi Jasser. We'll see you next week. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.